So today we're beginning a new series in, uh, to, to take us through the whole of the season of Epiphany, five weeks. And the series is called, This Is My Body. We are going to be um, traveling through 1 Corinthians 11 through 13 and seeking to better understand our identity as the body of Christ because we need to live into our identity as the body of Christ, as Emmanuel Anglican Church. This is a local, incarnate expression of the body of Christ. And so to better understand what that means as a church, we're going to be uh, spending five weeks in 1 Corinthians. I'm so glad that we have with us today uh, the canon theologian for our diocese, Father Stephen Gautier. Father Stephen works in Chicago, lives in Wheaton, and serves um, as, a, as a priest at Church of the Resurrection. And he's going to begin our series uh, by talking about the connection between the body of Christ and the body of Christ that we partake in the Eucharist. Father Stephen. Father, I thank you. It really is a joy and privilege to be with you again. I was asked again by our bishop to send his greetings. So Bishop Stewart sends greetings to, to everyone here. You know, we just finished in Advent. It's not working. I, it's not on? Okay. Okay. Is it working now? I'm really encouraged that people wanted to hear. <laughs> that people think this is a remarkable blessing. Okay. Okay, again, greetings from, uh, from, our, from our bishop. In Advent, you know, why did we have the four weeks traditionally of Advent? And you'll recall the reason we had, we just finished that, these all tie together, was it represented basically the 400 years of silence. Prophecy simply stopped for 400 years. People had the promise that God would, in fact, uh, would come again and speak, but not until John, and that's why there's so much excitement with John the Baptist. When he comes, for the first time in over 400 years, the word of the Lord came to John. And so what we're told about, talked about in Advent, we're told to do, is instead of looking at her looking in the past, what does that mean for us? It's not nostalgia. Advent was about, you know, just as they were waiting, we're waiting too. They were waiting for the first coming of Christ. We're waiting for the second coming of Christ. Okay. But are we in the same position that Israel found itself in? Because after all, in that 400 years of waiting, all they had to live on was memories. They had the word. They looked at it, they cherished it, but they were wait- there was nothing else but that to hold on to. Are we simply like Israel, except we waited five times as long? You know, seriously, 400 years, it's now been 2,000 years. What's different profoundly about our, our wait? And that's what we celebrated at Christmas. Remember, what's the name we're told about with Jesus as Christmas? Emmanuel, dear to you. It's God with us. So unlike Israel waiting, remembering that, waiting for another time, even as we wait, God is with us in Jesus. But how? How is he here? Well, this is a problem Luke takes on. Luke is the gospel we're using this year. Every, one, every three years, we have a three-year cycle, we do one of the, uh, the synoptic, the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. This is the year of Luke. And Luke specifically takes on the issue. That's why he wrote Acts of the Apostles. So he starts out, that's why Acts of the Apostles begins with Jesus going back to the Father, Jesus ascending to the Father. Because we would think this is the classic sign of, okay, he's gone again, he was here, he's gone, and now we're waiting again. We're pretty much back in the same situation, waiting for another time. But that's not the end of the story. 
The whole story of Acts of the Apostles is that God works Jesus. The Lord Jesus himself is alive and at work in his church. Everything Jesus did, his church does. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, comes and infuses that body, which is the church. Uh, Paul even says in Ephesians, he says, he describes the church, he says, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now we see this transition in the scripture. We see, you know, what about, you know, people say, what's the, what's the church's birth? And there are actually three days in the church's birth. Sometimes people say Pentecost, they're missing the point. The church is born on Good Friday. Remember, when Christ dies, the water and blood, baptism and Eucharist flow from his side. That's when the church is born. But you know, what's the first thing a baby does? It takes the first breath of life, right? It receives that first breath of life. That's what happens on the very eve of Easter. Remember when Jesus comes, the first thing, the very day of Easter, when he comes to his apostles, he said, he breathed, he breathed on them. He said, receive the Holy Spirit. And what does he say right after that? He says, whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Why does he say that? What's the most unique power that God has? Remember we talked, who else can forgive sins? But God, the Pharisees say. It's his own power, the power to forgive sins, he gives to his church. It's saying all the power of Jesus is located in his church. And what's the third step? So a baby is born, takes his first breath, and then we hope it's going to cry. Right? That's the sign of life. That's what, that's what Pentecost is, is the church takes its first cry of life in its mission to the world. So what happens? You know, how are we different from the Israel waiting for the Messiah? We're not waiting for someone who's not. We're, Jesus is waiting with us. Even if we're there, Jesus, is, living Jesus is with us in his spirit, in his church. Which brings us to our main point this morning. How do we, there's, there's the, this body of Christ we're talking about, has the spirit, the breath of Jesus. Okay. How do we become part of that body? How does this happen? How do we actually become part of that body? And the scriptures tell us we have two gospel ordinances, right? Sacraments, baptism and Eucharist. And both of those are the means God uses to do this. Remember, we're told in 1 Corinthians, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. That's what it says, right? For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. And then we're, so we, in celebrating today the baptism of the Lord, we're actually celebrating that we are joined into Jesus' own baptism. Everything is true. Jesus is true of us. You know, something we might miss in the story I love. Why do they have a dove? to represent the Holy Spirit. We, we're used to it, right? We've grown up with it. But it's not the first thing you would think of as uh, to, to represent the Holy Spirit. It's, just record, it's record, uh, reminding us of something else very important. Do you remember what happened is with the flood? Remember, we, we, send out, we send out a raven, then we send out a dove. And the dove comes back. Why does it come back? Because the, the earth is still covered with sin, right? The waters of sin had covered at the time of Noah. It was covered with sin, and there's nowhere to land. But it, what does it have? It, it's carrying back olive, which is a sign of anointing. Remember, Jesus is the anointed one. Okay. So what happens when it goes out again? It doesn't come back. Why? Because it found the place to lie, which is the sign the waters were beginning to go down. Instead of sin covering the whole earth, somehow the waters came down and to come back. Well, that's what happens now. The, the baptism of Jesus is celebrated. It's his coronation, so to speak. You know, basically, you become king when, when your dad dies, right? You know, your king is dead long as the king, but you always have a coronation, right? With Jesus, what we have in his baptism is this is, the, this is his recognition as the anointed one, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. But what's so special here, it says he's in the water, is the Spirit comes down on Christ, rests on him, saying, now there's a place to lie. Now in Jesus... 
the first, the tops of the mountains are here. And what's true of him will now get to all of us. And this is true of our own baptism. Every one of us, when we're baptized, God is saying what he said, this is the daughter I love. This is the son I love. And we share in that anointing. It's a powerful moment. So in our baptism, that's one way we enter. We're told we're baptized into his body. But the second is Eucharist. Look very carefully in verses 16 and 17. It says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now listen up. Because there is, because, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. There's causality. What Paul is saying is that God uses our participation to actually create that body. This is the work of God. It's because, Paul says, we eat the one body that we come. That is what makes us one body. Participating in Christ makes us part of his one body. So it's something, the first lesson we have is it's something, uh, actually this is, you might miss it, we, have, we proclaim in the creeds, we said we believe in the communion of saints. I think people often miss what that actually means. We think vaguely saints and plaster and these kinds of things. It is actually what it means is two things. In Greek and Latin is what happens saints, okay? The word for saints is for people is the same as for things, you know, for holy things. They describe the bread and wine are described as the holy things. In Latin, it's either sancta, the holy things. And people are sancti, the holy, holy people. Okay. And so what happens here is what they're saying, we say we believe in the communion of saints. What that always has meant is we believe that, that first of all, that by taking together Christ's body, we become one in him. That's the communion. That's what we're claiming in our creed. We believe, and more than that, why do we think of saints? Is because that communion in Christ's body that starts now is never broken. It's forever. So communion, when we participate in the one bread, in the one, in the one cup, not only this God draws together, but it draws us together in a way that never ends for all time. This is where the body comes to our baptism, and then in Eucharist, Christ draws us together, the communion of saints, the holy, the, the, we come together here and we all become one in the body. Now, two important lessons for us here that I want to spend most of our time talking about. The first is we don't create the body. I think we sometimes look at the church like an organization. We, we have certain structures. This is God's work, not ours. Our job is to get out of the way. No, we, can, we don't make the body. We don't use regular humans. This is the work of God. We don't choose who's in that body. God has made that choice. We have one wonderful prayer when it talks about church union. One of our, it's an ancient prayer. Uh, it goes back to St. Basil uh, in the 4th century, one of our Eucharistic prayers, Eucharistic Prayer D, where it says, when it talks about unity, it says, reveal the church's unity. So it doesn't say we should create it. Our sin is that we don't see it, and we act against it. It's there, we just don't see it. It's like you might not, you might have a fight with your brother or sister or some sibling, but they're still your brother and sister. You're denying it doesn't change the fact. So real unity is God's work. It's not ours. We can't look upon it in regular human terms. It's God's work. The second thing that Paul warns us about that I want to spend our time on here is though it's God's work because of sin, we can impede and get in the way of that. That's what Paul warns us solemnly today. Most of us look at the fact that he's emphasizing our participation in the body and blood of Christ. But he spends most of the time actually talking about how we get in the way of that. And he talks about participating unworthily. Now what's interesting here is I think most of us when we talk about participating unworthily, what we first think of is personal sin, don't we? 
We think, you know, I'm doing sins and I'm not worthy to come to communion. That's not at all what Paul's talking about. I mean, communion is for sinners. I mean, that's the, it's the medicine of immortality. We have to repent of our sins, but it's here for sinners. That's the reason I take communion. Okay, so uh, it's here for sinners, but the Corinthian problem was different. Let's look at it. In verses 27 and 29, he talks about, what it, about receiving unworthily. The thing that can get in the way of the unity. This is all about joining us in the one body. Why does that not always happen perfectly? What, what do we do that's getting in the way? And he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the word in, an word in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now we often think we're talking about, this just means sort of the theology. Do we understand you know, the, the presence of Christ? Actually, that's not about uh, what uh, Paul's talking about. He doesn't say without discerning the body and the blood. He says just the body. That's not accidental, as we'll see with the rest of the passage. He says to take, to participate in the body, <coughs> in communion, without discerning the body, is to take it unworthily. So he tells us, he gives us an actual example here that should resonate with a lot of us in church life. What they used to have is they used to have it with um, with church is people used to get together and have a meal called an agape meal. And then they'd have Eucharist as part of that. It was a potluck. But what was happening is people were actually coming and were unwilling to share their food. They just shared with their friends. So they came around, they started gathering groups of people, and they would have share with their friends. And people who were poor, who just weren't connected, what's changed? People who are not connected aren't in the right groups, were there sitting with nothing to eat. And I just see the bother people. People got to get together with their friends, you know, then they go and have communion. This is what Paul's talking about here. He says, this is outrageous. He says, wait, uh, 20 and 22, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What Paul's point is, we cannot recognize Jesus here if we don't recognize Jesus there. They are inseparable. We can't say that we recognize and cherish your participating in the body and blood of Christ and somehow not have that same feeling to our brothers and sisters are the body of Christ. It's all or nothing. Paul says that's, that's what his idea is of unworthy. So, what, how can we truly, how do we discern the body of Christ worthily in his church? How is that done? And I think the answer is, remember when we have the Eucharist is instituted, we have that in John's uh, you know, in John's Gospel, especially the, the, the foot washing, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. I think there's a few things we can learn from the connection that John makes there with how we can avoid, uh, you know, how do we receive worldly. Okay, and I would suggest that there are four ways that we can discern the body. Four different ways that we can actually make sure when we see Christ here, we're seeing Christ there. So what's the first of the, uh, the first thing? To discern the body of Jesus in his church is to pour ourselves out in humble and unstinting service to our brothers and sisters. Remember, it says here in Philippians, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. It says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. You know, I think it's, I'm, I'm in business. I have a regular, you know, I have a regular life in, in the business world. 
And we'll forget to tell how people are new employees, like when we have a meet, you know, social gatherings. I remember one, a guy with a plate full of shrimp and thing, he's saying, I think we're almost out of shrimp. And saying, dude, <laughs> our job is to make sure they're served. <laughs> That's nice if you can get something. But we're here for them. Our job is to work the room. We go around with people are connecting and connect them, etc. We don't want anyone to feel lonely, anyone without to go thing. That's what we're here to do. And that's a whole different vision. Trust me, if I knew what to put on a wedding, notice this thing. It's different to go to them and figure, you know, how am I going to get maximum enjoyment as opposed to my job is to make sure this is working for everyone. Well, that's what we're all called to. That's what it means to be called to service. When we come to church, it's not how do I get my needs met. It's how do I meet the needs of others. If we have love, I love people say love is blind. I think love wants to see. You know, when we have love, we suddenly can see needs we've never seen before. They're all around us, we just don't see them. So when we have a servant's heart, we have a servant's eyes, we suddenly see the lonely, the neglected, we see those people, that's what brings the body together. So it's not about, am I getting enough, do I have enough shrimp? The question is, what about everyone else? What's right? that's, what, that's the heart of what it means, that kind of service, which Jesus uh, you know, pours, him, pours himself out. He, he washes the, uh, the apostles' feet. Now, the second thing we have, discerning the body, is what about authority? Any group of people have to have authority, right? What about authority? And to remember a profound truth of the gospel. It's again, Jesus warns us, it's nothing but the world. All authority, I mean to underscore and italicize all, put in bold, okay? All authority exists solely for the benefit of those who are being served. Any other authority is illegitimate. For example, as a parent, the only reason we discipline is for our children's benefit. If we, for example, a bad parent, if we get kids angry and we take advantage of their little, we can, we can express our anger. That's not authority. That's, that's tyranny. There are people, too. I mean, what is this? They're, not, they're no different from us. They're, our job is to serve them. Anything that's about my being angry, for example, this is a job we all know, as opposed to they need this. I'm worried about them. They're broke. If it's about me, that's, that's abuse. That's, that's tyranny. That's, that's an abuse of power. All authority at every level is about serving others. Jesus said, do you understand what I've done to you after, after, the, uh, after the washing of the feet? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right to do so, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I've done. And in Matthew, he gives a general principle. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and the great ones exercised authority. It shall not be so among you. Authority in the church is profoundly different. Whoever be great among you must be your servant, and whoever be first among you must be your slave. So, again, it's, it's not about val Authority is not about being validated. It's about serving. And so often it becomes, that's what goes wrong, it becomes being recognized, you know, being validated. That's completely foreign. Recognize the body's truth. All authority is about serving, meeting the needs of those that we have to get authority over. The third with discerning the body is this is something we miss. You know it takes a lot of humility to accept the service of others. We run across this at the Last Supper. Do you remember when Jesus comes to, to wash the apostles' feet, what happens when he comes to Peter? Peter says, oh no, Lord. You know, you know. It takes humility to accept service. It really takes real humility to accept service. Okay, so what we have to, to look at here is the it's not a matter of the practicality of it. We will deny no one that, um, 
that, that their, their gift to, to provide service. We will not deny that to anyone. And so again, we think, of, oh no, we don't want to bother them. It's actually pride. So we, we take from others. That's how we discern the body. And that ties to our last of the four points is to discern the body is to embrace the truth that our spiritual gifts are for others. We've talked about this before. Paul says all gifts are for the common good. Again, we're forever whining because we're looking at worldly things and saying, I'm not happy with my spiritual gift. And I've got to tell you, good, it's not for you. Okay, I'm glad you don't like it. Our, all of our spiritual gifts are for others, and the gift we need is the gift others have. That's what binds the church together. And that ties to accepting the gifts of others, the humility of accepting those gifts. And knowing that Paul is very careful with words. He says everyone has one of these gifts. You know, I think something that we understand much better now uh, in, in a younger generation, so you, I'm obviously not that generation. I was a generation where things were pre pretty much butcher baker, candlestick maker. You had very clear career paths. You did this, you became that. Wouldn't, wasn't that. wouldn't it be a nice world? You go to school and you get, there'll be a job waiting for you. You just do this, get a training, you're up for Boy, those days are long ago. Most people don't have any sort of, you know, everyone almost has to explain their job though, don't they? A few people like doctors are accepted. But almost everyone else, what do you actually do? And you start kind of, it sort of comes together, right? You, 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 you sort of play it by ear. The job sort of creates itself. It's sort of different. It's sort of, you do isn't exactly what anybody, for most of us, does anymore. They're sort of unique. Well, that's how the gifts of the Holy Spirit work. I think sometimes we look at some examples Paul gives, but part of the sermon is realizing that they look at, they, if we have God's eyes, they, they, look, you know, they look very different. They're always very unique. They're not just a little set of here or five gifts. And our eyes with, is to look and see those gifts so we can receive them. We have to have God's eyes to see gifts. We never, never thought of a job we never thought that people do, but that combination, this is what's needed. And everybody is, like this body here, we're going to have exactly people who do something that maybe no other congregation has that kind of, uh, that kind of, and nothing is too small. We had a congregation, uh, one of our friends in that congregation, John Battis of Lost Man Rangers, is John was limited with what he could do. But here John had a tremendous blessing for many of us. John never missed a time the church's doors were open. You could be sure if there was a service, there would be you, God, and John. Okay. <laughs> uh, and i got to tell you, at first you might say, what's the, uh, what's the thing there? It's amazing what a Barnabas effect that could have. This man was a real support. He was really there. He wasn't just there, he was there. That was his special ministry. And it took a while to appreciate how powerful that was. That he always had John, and there he was. You know? And that's a powerful ministry that was so easy to overlook. We mock something like this. Actually, it was something that more and more you find precious. Do we have eyes to see those gifts? So again, we have the first thing. Again, discerning the body means discerning is service. Is we begin noticing when we realize we're not here to receive, we're here to give. That's when we start seeing people for the first time. Otherwise, if coffee times and things, we're all going around our friends, people we like to talk to, people who validate us. When we realize here we're here to be Jesus, we're looking for people who aren't connected. We're looking for people who are just getting lost in the shelf or sort of embarrassed. The second thing we said was all authority is remember the only thing about isn't isn't my being recognized for my gifts. What it is is about simply a way to serve. It's no more, no less. Completely about service. Third, humility, and this is so important. It really takes humility to accept service. We never deny something. I remember a film I saw, a lot of my wife and I saw this uh, powerful film. It's about some uh, unique us about uh, some French Canadian nuns. It's an acquired taste. 
But it was actually meant to be an expose of that what we call the quiet revolution, and people were sort of criticizing religious things. And they went and they saw this this nun who was like 87 on her hands and knees on stone floor. You know, kind of things like the deck there. There are these huge things. And they come up with you this exploitation. They come to see the mother superior and say, Yeah, it's more than that. And they didn't expect that. She said, But this is her gift. She loves this. She, she, this is her gift. How can I say no? How can I deny someone that gift? And finally, again, to discern, that, uh, to remember spiritual gifts, instead of saying, I, I'm, not, I'm not feeling my spiritual gift isn't meeting my need. Again, it's realizing, good, the one, the gift that we have that we need is out there. That's part of having the eyes. We need to look for it to find out where it's going to be. And we have to say, look, God gave me a gift for others. Am I actually putting it to use? These are the things. This is involved receiving worthily. When we do those things, when we discern the body, then we can receive worship. We discern both. It's not one or the other. It's always both. Now, you know, to love Jesus is to love him in the all-too-human guise of his church. You know, Mother Teresa liked to say that we, you know, serve, God, serve Christ in the troubling uh, uh, dis disguise of the poor. You know, these people are not necessarily easy. The church is not always an easy place. So I think a lot of us, we think of the church as this, I, this platonic ideal we read about. You know, some theological... No, it isn't. It's real-life flesh and blood human beings. And if we want to perfectly look at the church at Corinth, wow, do these people have issues. But it was still God's church at Corinth. So again, when we start talking... These are not a theo, this is a... Christianity is about incarnation. Jesus is here. It's not, it's not, not ideas, it's concrete facts. This is where Jesus is in flawed human beings. Now, we, and again, we, we, we flatter ourselves, we cannot love the bridegroom and not love the bride. If somebody said, you can't love me and not love my wife. It just doesn't work that way. So you can't say, Jesus, I just love you, it's just your church is a real pain. You know, to love one is to love the other. Fooling ourselves. Now, Jesus, so summarize it, Jesus is truly Emmanuel. Unlike Israel waiting, as we wait for the Lord's second coming, which will come, he did not leave us orphans. He's here in his spirit. And again, if we think, remember, spirit in Greek and Hebrew is the word for breath. And sorry, I, I defer to the doctor here on the front row, but, you know, if somebody said, is he breathing, talking about me, you wouldn't be looking around. You'd say, well, you sort of look, wherever you find the breath, you find it in the body. You know, that's where you find someone's breathing. Where do we look for the spirit? We look in Christ. That's where we find the spirit in Christ's body. How is that body created? Through our baptism and through Eucharist. This is where the body, it's not a recognizing something, this is where God actually does that work, creates this. Now, we need to cooperate that, right? We have, we, it's not, we have to recognize Christ both here and there. And how do we recognize this body of Christ and our, our brothers and sisters around us by serving them and receiving their gifts? And I think that here's a, 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 to end on this note, is you know in England and France and things, they would have these massive tombs you find in churches, like Westminster Abbey and things, you find these massive tombs of people making their contributions. Okay. If you go to St. Paul's Cathedral in London, the great cathedral in London, the man who built that in any number of churches in London, many of them sadly destroyed by the Blitz, was Christopher Wren, who was one of the greatest architects in English history. When you look for his tomb, you won't find anything. What you find is a little plaque on the wall. This is Christopher Wren, and his years. It has one line beneath it. It says, if you're looking for his monument, look around you. If you're looking for his monument, look around you. And I think that's what we have, we can say here in Holy Communion, what we're saying is, 
Uh, we can say the same thing. If we're looking for the body of Christ, look here, of course, but also look around you. Amen. As the body of Christ, with all stand, confess our faith using the words of the Nicene Creed, which is found on page six of your programs. Confessing together, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty. 